Please turn with me to Acts chapter 2. Acts 2. Acts chapter 2, I'll be reading from verse 36 to the end of the chapter, verse 47. Now, obviously, you'll note I'm picking uh, this passage up in the middle of a lengthy sermon that's even abbreviated by Luke here. I think you're all familiar, I would hope, with this sermon of the Apostle Peter at Pentecost. I do think it's important to note that in verse 14 it says, but Peter standing up with the eleven lifted up his voice. Sometimes we fail to appreciate the fact that Peter was the spokesman of the apostles, but it's not like he was the only authority there amongst the people there. We also see even in verse um, following in... uh, Yes, in verse 37, um, when they're pricked in the heart, they said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles. They weren't just asking Peter a question, they were asking the whole apostles. And it seems to suggest that they, Peter said unto them, but it appears that all of the apostles were engaged in this teaching. But Peter clearly is the spokesman. Somebody has to be the spokesman Uh, And he was the one uh, on this occasion and on many occasions, right? As we see throughout the gospel, he was often the first uh, to speak for the disciples, sometimes very hastily, uh, but he was usually the one that piped up first. So let us hear God's word, Acts chapter 2, verses 36 uh, and following. So this is picking up at the very end of the sermon. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said unto them, Repent, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins. And ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is unto you, and to your children, and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. And the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. And fear came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And all that believed were together and had all things common and sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man hath need. And they, continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat and gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. This ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word. Now this Lord's Day sermon is entitled The Apostolic Church. I want to just briefly describe or give us some characteristics of the apostolic church as we have here in this passage. And I want to contend that a biblical church is an apostolic church. Now, we live in an area of the country where if you told many uh, that you were uh, involved in an apostolic church, they may get the wrong impression. 
right? Because we live in a very superficial day and age, and they may think, oh, they're referring to the signs, to these supernatural gifts, which were given by, they were the apostles' gifts, right? They were signs of the apostles, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians. They've been done away with. But that was just the superficial part. That was just the external part. The core of apostolic Christianity is and must be alive in the visible church. And so I want us to look at some of those characteristics of the apostolic church's activities and atmosphere that we might pursue them in our own lives, in our own church lives, and pray and ask God to give us more of these characteristics in days to come. Christ promised to build his church in Matthew, or actually to build his church, right, in Matthew 16, 18, but then he tells the disciples he's going to give them the keys of the kingdom. Are you building the kingdom or are you building the church? Well, obviously Christ is using them in, in synonymous way, right? They're synonyms there. We've just read Psalm, or sung Psalm 23. Christ is the chief shepherd. And yet we read and see in 1 Peter 5 in particular that the chief shepherd has delegated that work. Not, he's not given off it, but he's delegated it down to men, vessels of clay, who are under shepherds and who must report to the chief shepherd. Christ is building that church that the men at Nicaea said was one holy Catholic and apostolic church. They speak of the unity of the church, the holiness of the church, or its separateness, its Catholicity, or its fact that it's universal. Remember in the book of Revelation, particularly Revelation 7-9, we read of this great multitude at the throne of God that no man could number, of all nations, kindreds, tribes, and tongues. The church is spread throughout the world, and it will continue to be spread throughout the world. But it's also apostolic, because we're built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, as Paul states in Ephesians 2.20. But it's in this church, people, that God has told us through the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 3.10. It's through this church, this messy business that we have been involved in, that God displays his multifaceted or manifold wisdom, not just to the seen world, but even to the unseen world. Is that not remarkable? When we consider that, do we not all say, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. Help me to appreciate more fully what you are doing in your wisdom, in your church, displaying your glory and majesty to a particular people, to a separate people who he has honored. Just think about all of world history, children, which is his story, right? History is his story. But where do we have the great history book? Right here. And what's its focus? The people of God. Does it say something about our warfare with those outside? Of course it does. But what is the primary theme? What's the focus it's the people of God. The people of God. That's who he is concerned with. His own. Those he's chosen from all eternity. Set his electing love upon and applied it in time. That's who he cares about. And so let's look at Peter's sermon application and then the people's personal application here in this text. Here in verse 36, 
as Peter summarizes it, therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. That same person named Jesus, God saves, but he's speaking of a person. That their representatives, and maybe even some of them, were engaged in his murder. This is God has made him, both Lord and Christ. You didn't just murder a man without following judicial process, but you murdered the second person of the Godhead. The one that the Father made both Lord and Christ. Now, it's kind of amazing. It's hard to imagine. How did the lordship controversy ever start? Some of you are familiar with that and have a few years. But you look at this passage, it doesn't seem like there should have been any controversy about it. This Jesus, the one who saves, is the Messiah, and he is Lord. And so we must embrace him as Savior and Lord. We must embrace him as our prophet, priest, and king. We have to embrace him as he's represented, presented to us in the scripture. If not, we're embracing a Jesus of our own making. And any Jesus of our own making is a false God. So Peter is very explicit. His gospel message here focuses on Christ. As it should. And what happens here? We read in verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? They're pricked in their heart or pierced in their heart. The words not just come to them in word, but in power. As Paul said, it came to the the people at Thessalonica when he preached amongst them. The Spirit brought conviction. The Spirit attended the preaching of the word. Remember, Jesus had told the disciples in the upper room discourse, as he says in John 16, 8, that the spirit, he would send the Spirit, and the Spirit would reprove the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. He promised this, and this is what's happening. Now, there is some question. Did they interrupt the sermon here? Was the sermon over, and now it's question time? I would argue it's not always inappropriate to ask a question in a sermon. I could tell you, being preaching in the East, it happens quite a bit. <laughs> as well as sometimes dogs walking down the aisle or what have you. Or a rooster or chickens coming in. But Peter doesn't question their de- 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 deportment or decorum here, apparently. Or Luke certainly doesn't raise it. He and the others answer. What must we do? They've been convicted. Now they know they've got to do something. But they don't know what. Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent and be baptized. Now again, as I said before, Luke is abbreviating this message. We don't have faith mentioned here explicitly. But I would argue that though faith and repentance must be distinguished, true faith never walks alone. It always has true repentance right along with it, hand in hand. And true repentance always has true faith with it. And we see that in scripture. Sometimes the Jesus or the apostles, sometimes they say repent, sometimes they say believe, sometimes they say repent and believe. Sometimes believe and repent. 
They go hand in hand. Now the question might arise, what about baptism? Repent and be baptized. Is is baptism a requirement for salvation? There are some that contend it is. Even some that have deviated from Presbyterianism years ago in Tennessee and Kentucky primarily. But we know that circumcision is not required, and we know that baptism is not. We have even the example of the thief on the cross, who was that day, Jesus says, to be in paradise, and yet did not have the opportunity to experience Christian baptism. So Christian baptism is not absolutely essential. Listen to the words that I'm saying. It's not absolutely essential to salvation, but it is the fruit of confession or profession. Remember in Romans 10, 9 and following, Paul says that God causes a person to be called and actually to meet up with somebody with beautiful feet who's got a gospel message. And when that person with beautiful feet meets up with that person that God's calling and brings the word, it's actually the word of Christ. It's the prophet, the chief prophet, speaking himself through that one whose feet are all mangled because they've been willing to travel through rough roads, but yet have beautiful feet nonetheless because they brought the gospel of peace. They brought the peace treaty to a rebel. And God weaves that together to cause that minister, that proclaimer of the gospel, it's not always a minister, right? Sometimes it's an elder, sometimes a deacon, sometimes a young child, even bringing the gospel to another child that they've met in their neighborhood, presenting the gospel message. But belief and then confession would lead to the next fruit, the next major thing is that profession is often made at baptism. And I think that's clearly what Peter is getting at. He also says it's in the name of Jesus Christ. Now some people say, what's going on here? Isn't baptism to be in the name singular of the three persons of the Godhead? Isn't that what we just saw? I think clearly what we have here is either Peter or even potentially Luke, again, abbreviating all that was said And even if that was all that Peter said, we see that our Christianity is, let me say, a Christocentric Trinitarianism. Jesus is the mediator between God and man. And so Christ is the focus of his message, and he may have focused upon Christ uh, in the actual administration of the sacrament of baptism here. But I don't think we're to assume he actually baptized 3,000 people himself. He certainly didn't do it in any flowing water, any river or anything there in Jerusalem. (coughs) He did it in the name of Jesus Christ with the remission of sins. They were pricked in their heart. They were pierced about their sins. And now Peter says, this is what you've got to do, but this is the fruit of what you've got to do. Your sins are going to be forgiven. Now, again, may he have said more? Most likely he did. Forgiveness of sins is just one side of the coin of justification. The other side is the imputation of Christ's righteousness to us. But again, in this abbreviated message, Peter would have us and would have had them understand that. Remission of sins, the imputation of Christ's righteousness, and the gift of the Holy Spirit. What a beautiful promise that is. He hasn't promised here the gift of tongues. He promised them the gift of the Spirit, the person of the Spirit to dwell in them, to lead and guide them, 
into all truth. And he says this promise in verse 39 is unto you. You're hearing it right now. This is the promise. If you do this, your sins will be forgiven and you will be given the gift of the Spirit. It's also under your children. All your children are hearing it. All your children will continue to hear it. They will continue to hear this promise. And then he says, and all that are afar off. Now some Baptists want to take this and say, oh, we'll see if the promise is to all that are far off and then to your children. That makes your children just the same as all that are afar off. But we have to understand the context uh, in which the audience was in. These were people that knew very well the story and the promise given to Father Abraham in Genesis 17.7. They were well aware that Moses himself was chastised for failure to circumcise his children. And until he did so, he was not going to be the instrument of the deliverance of God's people in Egypt. These people would have known well as they sang the Psalter, Lord's Day by Lord's Day in their synagogues. Yes, they went to Jerusalem. The faithful went to Jerusalem three times a year. But too many Christians think that that's all the Jewish Jews worshipped. They worshipped in synagogues. Teaching priests were throughout the tribes and synagogues were established. They were hearing the word read and they were singing God's word and praying God's word and have God's word exposited to them each and every Lord's Day. And they would have sung this psalm that we've sung before, we've we've prayed before, we've read before, Psalm 103, 17, and 18. But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting upon them that fear him and his righteousness unto children's children, to such as keep his covenant and to those that remember his commandments to do them. God's people would have known this. They also would have seen the scroll of the prophets and the scroll being turned to the prophet Ezekiel. And they would have heard from the lips of God in Ezekiel 16 a rebuke. Hard to imagine, but God's people were actually murdering their children, offering children to false gods. But there in Ezekiel 16, 21, God says to them, you may not have gotten just how heinous this crime is. You didn't just murder your children. You murdered my children. My children. That's how heinous this crime was. You murdered my children, God says to his people. I believe Paul picks up that same thought that I think sometimes we miss in Ephesians 6 4. Ephesians 6 4. And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Not bring them up in your own nurture and admonition, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition whose source is God himself. Parents were just vehicles. We're just the pipeline of God's nurture to our children. We're not the source. We're just the viaduct. That's true of parents, it's true of ministers and elders, just vessels of clay with the glory of God within and upon our lips. So as this promise is being spoken, these people very well understand that this promise is to their children 
and it's to those that are far off, as many as the Lord shall call. Now, a number of the commentators have different opinions on this. Is this the effectual call of God? Is this the general call of God? You remember Jesus said, many are called, few are chosen. In other words, as many that hear the gospel promise, but not all embrace the, com- the gospel promise, so thus not all experience the blessings of the gospel promise. I would just say that it's pretty clear here that it certainly is referring to the general call. Because we do believe in the exclusivity of the gospel. We know that nobody that, uh, apart from those extraordinary cases, that God has in his own covenant mercy, we know that those that do not hear the gospel and worship a false god will spend eternity in eternal torment. That's why we take the gospel to the world. And so this promise is not to everybody here. It's to those that God calls first explicitly in the general call. And it certainly is only experienced, that blessing is only experienced by those who God effectually calls. Right? Amongst the people, even the hearers there, their children, and those that are far off. We've got to take the gospel to the world. So we've seen here Peter's sermon application. He goes on. It says he testifies with many other words, literally in the Greek, more words. Save yourself. In other words, deliver yourself from this untoward, literally this crooked generation. Uh, In other words, sometimes we, even in our own culture, if somebody is not inebriated, if somebody's not affected by alcohol or drugs, you might say they're straight. Or if somebody, even in sexual orientation, we would say somebody's straight. In other words, those that aren't straight are crooked, right? Those that aren't straight aren't seeing the world as it really is. And thus keep running into Jersey bouncers left and right. Right? No wonder they have problems because they're operating in a world, they see the world differently than it really is, that God has created it and the dynamics that he's established and declared to us. And so they routinely go off course. They're crooked. And what he's alluding to here is, is the, this, as Paul does in uh, Romans 12, 2, we can't be conformed or pressed into the thinking of the world. We swim in that thinking. We see it every day. And it's easy to let it creep in. But we have to be transformed by the world. So that's really what, he's, what Peter's telling them here. Be transformed. Be metamorphosized by the word of God rather than being caught into it. That's how you deliver yourself out of this mess is to see things straight. To take up the owner's manual and to take up the map that accurately reflects reality so you can traverse this journey the way God has ordered it for you to do. To keep out of the ditch on the right or on the left. So we've seen Peter's application of the sermon. Now let's consider the people's personal application, verses 41 and through 47. First, the immediate application. Secondly, the long-term application. And then thirdly, I want to talk about another long-term application, really focusing on the atmosphere of the apostolic church. So we'll look, what's the immediate application, verse 41? They that gladly received his word were baptized. So that doesn't mean every single person that heard this message from Peter or the other apostles believed. But they that gladly received it, they believed and they were baptized. They repented and they were baptized. And the same day were added unto them about 3,000 souls. 
What if I told you I believe there were 12,000 to 15,000 people baptized that day? I guess, how did you get that? Not because I'm twisting any text here or um, trying to go back to some obscure text that says that, but what I go back to is in Matthew 14.21, though the other apostles described the feeding of the 5,000 as 5,000, Matthew says it was 5,000 males plus women and children. I think what we're to understand is that they're just carrying over what was the common practice amongst the Jews, and that is they numbered based on families. And so this is family headship being represented. And it's not saying that only those males were baptized, but what it's suggesting is there was a lot of, a lot of souls, a lot of households baptized that day. Now notice in verse 41, the words unto them. Children, do you see them italicized? They're cocked over to the right. Do you know what that means in the King James? It means they're not really there in the original. It means the translators have put those words there so it would flow. And so whenever you add some words, that could be a little dangerous, right? I would contend they routinely got it very correct. They're trying to help us understand. Unto them, unto that group of people, unto the apostles and the 120 that were gathered in the upper room. Right? Added to the 120 may have been somewhere in the order of 12 to 15,000 people in one day. That's church growth, right? That's quite amazing. They were added. Augustine, the great African theologian, said this, Whosoever he be, and what manner of person soever he is, a Christian he is not, that is not in the church. Whosoever he be, what manner of person soever he is, a Christian he is not, if he's not in the church. So that was their immediate application. They gladly received what he had said. They repented and were baptized. They professed their faith in Jesus Christ and their repentance of their sins. And the apostles baptized them. And they were added to the church. They were now on the rolls of the church. And then we see the long-term application. What did those people generally do? We have the activities of the apostolic church. In verse 42, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and prayers. The great Swiss, actually French theologian, who spent most of his time in Geneva, said this, Luke doth reckon up those things wherein the public estate of the church is contained. Yea, he expresseth in this place four marks whereby the true and natural face of the church may be judged or examined. So Calvin's prepared to say there's four marks of the church, and here they are. Now we know that the Dutch have slightly different marks, and our Westminster Confession refers to some different marks, and we can have all kinds of theological discussions about those, but I think we all know there are more marks of the church than just three, the Westminster or the, the Dutch, or even here, we know there are more marks of the church than just in this one verse, right? But there are four characteristics, there's four activities. They continue steadfastly, they persevere in these things, the apostles' doctrine. In other words, God had made them disciples. God had made them people that wanted to learn his will. They wanted to understand more about themselves in Adam, in Christ, and in the world that they lived in. Remember, Jesus had said in John 8.31, if ye, if ye continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed. In other words, you're the true disciple if you continue. 
If you just start school and don't finish, don't think you were really much of a student. You weren't a real student. You weren't a real disciple. God made them disciples. Because this was God that added, we're told, to the church in 47. They also made them members. They engaged in fellowship or community. They had mutual concern for one another, mutual love for one another. Their souls were knit together like Jonathan and David. In other words, God not only made them disciples, he made them members of a body. And they had a certain function, and others had another function. And they needed one another. We're also told they gave themselves to the breaking of bread. I believe here in 42, the reference is to the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Later in 46, it'll speak, they broke bread house to house. I believe that's saying that they fellowshiped with one another over food, the way that most people do in most cultures throughout the world, even today. But they were engaged in the sacraments. Baptism had just occurred. Now they're engaging in the sacraments with some some repetitive, some routine, and in literally the prayers. So God not only made them disciples and members, he made them worshipers. And then we find in verses 43 and following a number of what I'm calling characteristics of the atmosphere of the church. The atmosphere of the church. I would argue it's hard enough for the leaders of a congregation or of a presbytery to order the elements of worship and these, what I would call, what John Murray called the functions of the church, worship, discipleship, witness, and fellowship. That's hard enough. I would contend it's a harder task to instill and cultivate these characteristics of the atmosphere of the church. This is hard for the leaders and it's hard for the people as well. We are to engage in the ordinary means of grace, the public means of grace. Does that mean we're to neglect the private means of grace? No. But I would contend that you really can't experience the blessings of private, the private means of grace if you neglect the public means of grace. Unless you're providentially hindered. If you cannot get out of bed, it's going to be a little hard to participate in some of the means of grace. But ordinarily, if you're not providentially hindered, you cannot long-term expect God to bless and, and meet you and the, the private means of grace to be, continue to be means of grace if you ne- neglect God's people in the public means of grace. The other thing is most of the, most of the world find it much more difficult to participate uh, in private worship than we do. Most of us can easily go into a closet and have a fairly comfortable, dry, you know, ideal temperature and humidity. Our Bibles aren't wrinkling up because of the heat and humidity as, we, as we're reading them. We don't have chickens and roosters and animals and every, running around. We can read. How many people can't read in the world? You see how important the public means of grace are in those situations particularly? Public means of grace, they're ordinary. And that's been a big focus in the Reformed Church today, right? Ordinary means of grace, ordinary means of grace, ordinary means of grace. Yes, but I don't believe the word ordinary generally means the same thing to us as it meant to the Westminster divines. Dictionaries of their time would suggest that ordinary meant a routine portion, a regular feeding. Whatever that portion was, it was regular. For us, quite often, the word ordinary means commonplace. It's just kind of 
take it or leave it. You know? That's not what they meant. What they meant is your regular portion, ordinary means of grace rather than extraordinary means of grace. Things that weren't ordinarily your portion. You may get a portion of it, but it's not every week. It's not regular. Ordinary means of grace. That was their activities. That was their focus of their activities. <clears throat> what was the atmosphere? We learn in verse 43 through 47 what that atmosphere was. I won't read that text. We've read it already. Let me tell you that overall it's mutual love towards one another. It's what Francis Schaeffer says, and I don't quote Francis Schaeffer a lot, but I do appreciate him still a lot. It's what he called the mark of the Christian. What he also called the final apologetic. Don't expect to get too far in your apologetical methods with unbelievers if you're not a loving person. If you don't show any care for that person, no matter how astute you are and how great your arguments are and tight, tightly wound your logical deductions are, you're not going to win anyway apart from the grace of God. And God ordinarily, ordinarily uses the compassion of people to influence people's minds. J.C. Ryle said this. I think I spoke with the Dalloways yesterday. I, I mentioned the fact that quite often Marines don't always appreciate uh, the Air Force or the Navy or uh, the Army, much less the, lo the logistics teams uh, that ultimately determine whether a battle or a war is won, right? And sometimes in the church, some of us think we're the Marines and we want to forget everybody else. And we're on the battlefront. I mean, even Warfield said that in one sense the Reformed Presbyterian Church is the foundation or it's the first story in a big skyscraper. And without it, all the rest of the evangelical church would be in a, in a shambles. And I think that's great, significantly true. But we need to be so careful to think that we're the Marines, right, and everybody else is on the, just supporting us. Ryle said this, our Lord has many weak children in his family, many dull pupils in his school, many raw soldiers in his army, many lame sheep in his flock. Yet he bears with them all and casts none away. Happy is that Christian who has learned to do likewise with his brethren. Happy is that Christian who's learned to follow the Lord in casting none away, who bears with the weaknesses of his brethren. We have much to learn in that regard, don't we? To follow the love of Christ, to bear with one another. Five characteristics here. First, care. It's pretty clear that the apostolic church was prepared to help in whatever need, whatever need was there. Spiritual, emotional, social, physical. People all of a sudden didn't care a whole lot about their possessions. They began to realize they're God's possessions. And I need to use them as God would direct me to meet the needs, not only of me and my family, but of others. And not only in the short term, but in the long term. So that didn't mean I have to give all my capital away for the needs of the world so I couldn't support myself or my family or give any more away in the future because I just sold all my acreage and now I have no harvest. But there still was this sense that we've generally lost today. We want to say this doesn't teach communism, so therefore... Let's be materialistic capitalists. It's not either or. And certainly the apostolic church, I believe they were capitalists because they believed uh, that you should not steal. But they were willing, they came to realize their stuff wasn't their stuff. It was God's stuff now. Care. Unity. They were one accord in verse 46. 
We're told they had joy or gladness. We're told they had singleness of heart. This means they weren't deceiving or weren't hypocritical. In other words, they were authentic. They were who they were, and they didn't try to put on a mask because now they were in the house of God with God's people. They had spent their lives like we had trying to impress people. Now the believer fears God and does not need to fear man. They were authentic. And lastly, we're told they praise God in verse 47. They had a gratitude. And I think here in verse 47, it's really telling us, I think, more than just that they went to regular worship services. I think it's speaking of this generic worship that John Murray refers to uh, as he, as he expounds, uh, again, Romans 12, 1 and 2, giving our lives as a sacrifice unto God, worshiping continually. So what have we learned in application and summary? We've seen the place, the important strategic place of the church and the importance of a healthy church that carries out the activities that God has assigned us to carry out, those means of grace. They're the ways God has promised to give us grace. He hasn't promised any others. Right? We've got to be engaged in them wholeheartedly. But we also have to cultivate this atmosphere in which we live with one another as the members of the body of Christ. So have you entered this grand story? Not just are you in history, everybody's in history, but are you amongst the people of God, this peculiar nation that we saw God describe us as in Deuteronomy 26 in your first scripture reading. If so, you've joined the chorus. You're a worshiper. God's made you a worshiper. Has God made you a worshiper? Have you entered Christ's school? Are you a disciple? Have you become a member of his body? And have you become a witness of his grace in the gospel? These people experienced a great evangelistic sermon and an increase of the church, and yet it's clear they went on because the Lord, at the end of this little section, Luke says, and the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. They became messengers of that message. I'm sure the disciples wanted to train them more on that message. But whatever they understood of that message, they were willing to testify of that to others. This is what it means to be a Christian, to be a worshiper, to be a disciple, to be a member, to be a witness, all under the lordship of Christ who does shepherd us apart from church leadership but ordinarily shepherds us through under shepherds that he's put in place for our care just as he's done for our children. William Perkins could say this, the church is the suburbs of the consummate city of God and the gate of heaven. And therefore, entrance must be made into heaven in and by the church. You got to get into the church or the kingdom of God in the kingdom of grace in this while time still is time if you ever want to be in the kingdom of glory. And it must be done through faith in Christ and repentance toward God. And if you turn to Christ and embrace him as your prophet to teach you, as your king to rule over and reign over you, and your priest to intercede for you, then all these are yours.
remission of sins, the imputation of Christ's righteousness, the gift of the Holy Spirit. But it is messy business. I don't often quote Boniface, but I will close with a quote from the medieval theologian Boniface. In her voyage across the ocean of this world, the church is like a great ship being pounded by the waves of life's different stresses. Get it? In her voyage across the ocean of this world, the church is like a great ship being pounded by the waves of life's different stresses. Our duty is not to abandon the ship, but to keep her on her course. We've all experienced the heartbreak of people traveling to home church with their last stop or one of their last stops being the PRC. It's heartbreaking, isn't it? Heartbreaking. We can't abandon the ship. We can't make something of our own making and call it a church. We've got to stay within the church and seek to do what we can in our place and station, as the Westminster Divines would say, in the place that God's put us to keep her on her course. May God assist us to do just that, and may he grant us the blessing of his spirit and those fruits from, of that spirit that flow into the life of our church. May he bless the means of grace in growing ways. May they be more and more means of grace to us, not just growth in knowledge, but in grace as well. And may we experience some of these characteristics, this atmosphere of the apostolic church, care, unity, gladness or joy, authenticity, and gratitude. Let us pray. Please rise for prayer.